tonight. Revelation 13. We've got a lot to cover. Keep our timeline up there that we've been working through here in our study through the book of Revelation. Now, Revelation 13, the whole chapter is about the Antichrist and about his sidekick, the false prophet. Now, if you've been with us here for the first 12 studies in our book of Revelation, we've gone through most of the stuff here in the first half of this. Just a really quick, quick review. We're talking about the tribulation period, which is a seven-year period of God's wrath out upon the earth. What we believe and teach out here is the pre-tribulation rapture of the church, meaning that the rapture happens before all this stuff comes to play. We've already talked about a lot of these people. We talked about the two witnesses. We talked about them a couple weeks ago. We talked about the temple being rebuilt a couple weeks ago. We talked about the 144,000, the uh, quote-unquote, and I say this out of respect, super Jews that God raises up to be lights and witnesses during the tribulation period. And so you can see here we're, we're finishing up our first half of this timeline. And that last square we have up there is the rise of the Antichrist. And that's who we're going to talk about today is the Antichrist. Now, you got to remember here with the Antichrist, I want to share just a couple things about you. One of my little pet peeves, and I hope I don't step on anybody's toes when I say this. I have never been one, and I don't really care. I hate it when someone tries to figure out who they think this guy is. We don't know who it is. We're not going to know who it is. The Bible says that the Antichrist is not revealed until after the rapture. So to spend any time, amount of energy on trying to figure out, quote-unquote, who he is, is just a waste of time and energy. According to Thessalonians, we're not going to know. Now, I do have to share this, and this is one of my first memories and when I first got saved. I got saved 18 years ago. I was listening to a radio station, and the guy was talking about who the Antichrist was. And I've shared this story with you before. It's my favorite Antichrist story. This guy was sure the Antichrist was a JFK, that he was still alive, and they had him on life support in Washington, and they were eventually going to bring him out, and he was the Antichrist. And the thing is, over the years, the 18 years I've been saved, you've heard so many crazy ideas. And to be quite honest, I see too many Christians wasting too much time trying to figure out something that can't be figured out. If you don't believe me, talk to me afterwards. Thessalonians makes it clear that the Antichrist is not revealed until the rapture happens, so it's really pointless for us to talk about who this guy could be. Real quick side note on this, though. If you're taking notes, write this verse down. It's 1 John 2.18. 1 John 2.18. It says, little children, it is the last hour, meaning end times, and as you have heard, the Antichrist is coming. Even now, many Antichrists have come by which we know that this is the last hour. See, there is the, the Antichrist, my New King James translates it, capital A, the one and only Antichrist. But there's also many Antichrists, little a. Anti just means against or in place of. So the Antichrist is really somebody that is against everything that is God and tries to stand in the place of God. And so there's many antichrists all over the place. Anybody that's against God or tries to stand in the place of God, that is the spirit of the antichrist in the sense of it is antichrist. It's against God. But there is only one antichrist, big A, and that's who we are talking about here tonight. Now, real quick side note about this. Just like we don't know who he is going to be because we don't know he's going to be revealed when the rapture happens, the enemy himself... Satan doesn't know for sure who the quote-unquote Antichrist is. Because if he's not revealed yet, how is the enemy supposed to know that? How is Satan supposed to know that? This is Satan's key guy. And it's really interesting if you just want to look out over history. There always seems to be a time where the enemy had some guy lined up that could have been the guy. You know, you just go back over time, back in the 80s, early 90s, everybody was talking about Saddam Hussein. You jump back before that, you had the different... Um, the different uh, premiers of Russia. They had Hitler back in World War II. You could just go back in time where you always see this one guy 
that really looks like he could have been the baddest guy around because the enemy doesn't know what's going on there either. So some interesting little side points on that, but the best way to deal with this is just get right into the Bible and see what the Bible has to say because we're just vapors, the Bible says, and we don't know a lot of this stuff, so let's just stick to what the Scriptures say. So with that being said, I'm going to read verses 1 through 10 of uh, chapter 13, and then we're going to break this down simply here. Verse 1 of Revelation 13 says, Then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard, his feet was like a feet of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. The dragon gave him his power, his throne, and his great authority. And I saw one of his heads as it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world marveled and followed the beast. So they worshipped the dragon who gave authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? And he was given a mouth, speaking great things and blasphemies, and he was given authority to continue for 42 months. Then he opened his mouth and blasphemy against God, to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. It was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them, and the authority was given over every tribe, tongue, and nation. All who dwell on the earth will worship him, and whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. He who leads into captivity shall go into captivity. He who kills with the sword must be killed with the sword. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints. Now, a lot of information there. Actually, take your sheets and flip it over to the back side, if you will. We'll do the first side here later. Let's do this back side. Just some quick little PowerPoints, if you will, on who the Antichrist is. First one there is he's empowered by Satan. That's pretty straightforward. Verse 4 there, Revelation 13. They worship the dragon. The dragon is Satan. We talked about that last week in chapter 12. Who gave authority to the beast. This is the guy. This is the guy that Satan is going to use here in the end times to be the world ruler. He is going to be empowered by the enemy. Some people have even said he may even possibly be possessed by Satan himself. So Revelation 13, 4, that's where he gets his power from, powered by Satan. What's he going to do? Well, he's going to persecute the saints. We already read that there in Revelation 13, that he goes against the people of the Lord. And Daniel 7, 25 backs that up too. So he's going to be empowered by the enemy. He's going to be attacking the church. I, excuse me, if you will, he's going to be attacking the Christians that are left here during the tribulation. He's going to be blaspheming God. I mean, this is going to be outright, really, spiritual worship of Satan. I mean, that's what it's going to be. Look at verse 4 one more time. They worship the dragon who gave authority to the beast. That dragon is the enemy. Verse 6, he opened his mouth and blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. This is just going to be outright against God. No, no, if, ands, or buts about it. This is going to be pretty straightforward against the Lord. Next one that we have here, he's going to be a political power. A political power. We know from Revelation 17, we'll get this here in a little bit, he's going to unite the world. And there's going to be a one world government that's going on. He will rule the world economically, which we'll get to in a couple chapters, politically, and also religiously. It will be a one world uniting. And as we mentioned a few weeks ago, we talked about how just impossible that sounds now. I think what every administration since Carter has tried to bring peace to the Middle East, and there's always those great photo ops of them standing there trying to get it figured out, that ain't going to happen. And as we talked about a few weeks ago, there's this problem here of the uh, Wailing Wall and also the, uh, the Temple of the Mount there, the rock, where the Arabs have that, the Muslims have that, and the Jews have this, and how are they supposed to be together? How are they supposed to be one? We can't figure this out now. Well, this guy's going to come in with some type of master plan and he'll work it all out. But even though he's against God, he's not against religion. There's going to be a religious institution, a religious system that is set up here during the tribulation time. The Bible calls it religious Babylon. 
And he's going to be aligning himself with religious Babylon for a while. We know in a couple of chapters what happens is when he's done using religion, he then turns on it and utterly destroys it. But for a while, he aligns himself with religious Babylon. Now, one of the interesting tidbits about here is verse 3. I saw one of his heads as it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world marveled and followed the beast. Some people have thought this to believe that there's going to be some type of fake resurrection. Look at the wording one more time in verse 3. I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded. Some type of fake thing going on here. You know, we don't know for sure. It wouldn't be surprise me if that's what happened, because from verses 11 through 18, we are introduced to a sidekick who's the false prophet. And you think about it from this way. You have Satan... You have the Antichrist, and you have the false prophet. You have, if you will, a little bit of an unholy trinity. Satan taking the role of God the Father, and then you have the false prophet taking the role of the Holy Spirit, and you have the Antichrist taking the role of Christ. Well, why wouldn't he have some type of little fake resurrection thing going on there in verse 3? It's quite possible. And why not? That would be a great political tool. That would be a great way to bring the world under him. That would be a great way for people to be amazed at what he did. Quite possible there in verse 3. But this is interesting. He's only in power... For 42 months. That's all. Arguably, one of the most, what's the word I'm looking for, world-changing humans that ever have lived is really only going to rule for 42 months for three and a half years. That's all he's going to do. In fact, the Bible calls it a short time that he's going to be in power and he's going to be in charge. So that's your background on who the Antichrist is. Now, let's talk about this stuff here at the beginning of the chapter. Let's jump back now to verse 1. We see right here he's coming out of the sea. Most people believe when you see the sea in the Bible, the sea represents mankind. The sea, the populace of people. So this is going to be a man that comes out of the sea. Some people believe where it says the sea, when the Bible refers to the sea, they're referring to the Mediterranean Sea. So some people have thought that he's going to be of that the Mediterranean origin, maybe some of the countries around there. It goes back to what we said at the beginning. We don't know for sure. So let's not sit here and try to make a point about something we don't know. Sea could just mean people. It could mean something there from the Mediterranean Sea. We don't know. So he comes out of here. He has seven heads, ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and all his heads a black name. Now, if you ever run across a passage in the Bible and you don't know for sure what it means, always let the Bible be the best commentary of the Bible. Turn, if you will, to Revelation 17. It tells us what this stuff means. Revelation 17, verse 9, comes right out and explains to us what this thing is. Revelation 17, verse 9. Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. There are also seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, and the other has not yet come. And when he has come, he must continue a short time. The beast that was and is not is himself also the eighth, and is of the seven, and is going to perdition. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have not received kingdom as yet, but they receive authority for one hour as kings with the beast. These are of one mind, and they will give power and authority to the beast. These will make war with the lamb, and the lamb will overcome them, for he is lord of lords and king of kings, and those who are with him are called chosen and faithful. So let's break this down now. Verse 9. Seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. Now, if you study out anything with history, the town, I should say, the uh, metropolis with the seven mountains are what? Generally refers to Rome. If you look throughout history, the seven heads, the seven mountains, excuse me there in verse 9, could be a reference there to Rome. Rome is the city based on the seven hills. Now, there's also a chance, too, because if you look right here at verse 10, there are also seven kings. And there can be some double meaning there. Some people believe that those seven mountains represent the seven world powers. If you remember your history here, what were the world powers? Egypt was the first. After Egypt was Assyria. After Assyria was Babylon. After Babylon were the Medes and Persians. After the Medes and Persians were the Greeks. After the Greeks were Rome. And then that leaves one left 
which is the reign of the Antichrist, seven world powers. Some people also believe that if those seven heads of the seven mountains are referenced to Rome, they said if you go back during John's time, you can actually count up the Roman emperors. And it lines up with that as well. Because look at what it says right here in verse 10. Five have fallen. Well, that could be the five Roman emperors that lived before John's time. One is the one Roman emperor that's living during John's time, and, one yet, and the others are yet to come. Or it could be the empires that we've talked about. Because at the time of John's writing, Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, the Medes, the Persians, the Greeks were already destroyed. Five are done. One is Rome, which is at John's time, and one is yet to come. And look what it says here. The one yet to come is the Antichrist. And when he comes, he must continue a short time. I cannot stress that to you enough. A short time. This guy is only in power, really only has the world under his sway for the three and a half years. That's all. That's all. And, and, you, and you have to remember with this right here, and this is a point we've made, I think, every week in our study in Revelation. This is not Satan pulling power away from God, and all of a sudden Satan has snuck this guy in, and all of a sudden now for three and a half years Satan gets to rule. No, the Lord is allowing this to happen. God is allowing this to happen here, and so therefore, when God says, you know what, your rule and reign is over, your rule and reign is over, you're done. How does this guy get power? Well, he gets power by verse 12. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings, ten kingdoms, who have not received a kingdom as yet, which means when John wrote this 2,000 years ago, these were ten kingdoms, ten countries, ten something, that were not existing at that time. So they have not received the kingdom as yet. They exist now. They receive authority for one hour. Once again, a short time as kings with the beast. They are of one mind and they will give their power and authority to the beast. So this is some type of thing, be it ten political unions, ten kingdoms, ten countries. You don't know, we don't know. They come together and they willfully give their power over to the Antichrist. Now if you're taking notes, it says in the book of Daniel chapter 7 that it looks like the Antichrist takes power from three of them on his own, and the other seven kind of give power over to him. So the way he gets his power is these ten kingdoms, three of them it looks like by defeat, he defeats and he takes power from them. The other ones then give their power over to them willfully, verse 13, and that's how he gets his world power. One last point about this, and we'll stop for some quick questions here. Jump back to Revelation 13. Let's do verse 2 real quick. Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard, his feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. Now if we had more time, we would go to the book of Daniel and actually talk about this, because this is given in detail here in Daniel 7. In Daniel 7, these animals are representative of the different nations, the different ones that were going on right here. And you can see in the notes there, leopard represents Greece. You guys remember your history, Alexander the Great, when he came and he conquered the world, he moved swift, he moved quickly. He was like a leopard. Medes and the Persians represented the bears. The Medes and the Persians actually ruled for a couple hundred years. Their rule is very solid, very stable rule. Babylon, they were fierce. That's why they were represented by the lion. The point is that his kingdom has all of that. It's powerful like the lion. It has that stability as the bear because he's brought the whole world under his control and it moves quickly like the leopard there, like Greece did. And he brings them all under control under his own kingdom. And you can't forget this point. Look at the end of verse 2. The dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. That's who the Antichrist is. A man that's raised up for a short time, only three and a half years, to rule the world in a one-world order, religiously, economically, and politically. He's empowered by the enemy. Enemy is what gives him the kingdom. And you can see how it all kind of comes together here. These ten countries, these ten unions, whatever it is, place their authority under him, and that's how he becomes the world ruler at this time. So, 
That's what we know here from uh, Revelation 17, Revelation 13, Daniel chapter 2, and Daniel chapter 7. Now, before we move on, any quick questions, comments about this? Ryan. Correct. Yeah. Right, the word rapture is never mentioned. And another one here, since we're throwing out these little tidbits, and you, the Bible never makes the connection between fallen angels and demons either. Those are things that we piece together by putting it all together there. Yeah, there you go. So if that ever comes up now in Trivial Pursuit, we can answer it. Get the green pie. Um, anybody else have anything here before we move on here about the Antichrist or anything we talked about? Okay, so that's him. Let's get his second here. Let's get his compadre, verse 11. This is the false prophet. It says, Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. He exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence and causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. He performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down from heaven on earth in the sight of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image of the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. He was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. He causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive the mark on their right hand or on their foreheads, and that no one may be able to buy or sell except one who has the mark of the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of man, his number is 666. So here's the second guy, false prophet. Once again, imagine this unholy trinity. Satan represents God the Father. Antichrist represents Jesus. False prophet, his job is like the Holy Spirit. He just points people towards the Antichrist. He's the ringleader. He's the one that gets everybody pumped up. He gets excited. His whole point is to point people towards the worship of the Antichrist. Look at verse 11. He has two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. That idea of being like a lamb that represents almost something spiritual, something good. When we think of lamb in the Bible, we think of Jesus. Well, horns think of fighting and weapons and power, and he speaks like a dragon. Well, what is the dragon? The dragon represents Satan. And so what happens is this false prophet, his job is to point people towards the Antichrist, to point people towards the worship of the Antichrist. And he does this by signs and wonders, verse 13. That's why you've got to be careful about signs and wonders. Throughout the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, God makes it abundantly clear, don't judge things off signs and wonders. And there's people, the Bible says, that chase signs and wonders. The enemy uses signs and wonders. That's one of those little tricks that he used. And so what's going to happen here in verse 13 is he's going to use signs and wonders and everybody's going to ooh and ah and it's amazing. Look what he can do. God says, don't be fooled by this type of junk. Same stuff still happens today. Because look at verse 14. He deceives. That's what Satan does. Remember what Jesus said about, about Satan? Back in John 5, he says he is the father of lies. He says he was a liar from the beginning. Go back to Genesis 3. What did he do to Eve? He lied. This is what Satan does. He takes truth and he twists it. And then he also just makes an outright lie sound like truth. That's what Satan does. So what happens is people come up and these people are quoting the scriptures. Well, they have to be right. They're quoting the Bible. I mean, anybody that quotes the scriptures has got to be right. No, those scriptures can be twisted. Well, this guy's got to be right. He's got his own TV show for crying out loud. No. See, if you just make yourself sound with authority and you just make yourself sound good, it's amazing how many people would believe. That's why we have such an important responsibility to make sure everything that is taught or said, be it here or anyplace else, that has to line up with scriptures, it has to line up with God, because there's people out there that want to deceive. We just talked about that, that first verse in 1 John 2. There are many antichrists, little a, out in the world today trying to pull people away. What did Jesus say in Matthew 24 about the end times? He says, many people will say there's Jesus. He's out there in the wilderness. Go chase him. And there's people today that chase God. 
They're always after the next spiritual thing. They're after that next guy that sounds good and looks good. And I call it rock star Christianity. Ah, We've got to get away from that type of stuff. We've got to be careful about the deception that that's going to happen there. What else do we have here that goes on? Well, he has power, verse 15, and he uses this power, verse 16, to do the mark of the beast. Wow, the mark of the beast. It's amazing how many people that know nothing about God, nothing about Jesus, know nothing about anything, they know about the mark of the beast. Well, what do we know about the mark of the beast? It says in verse 16, you have to get it on your right hand or you have to get it on your forehead. And it looks like this mark of the beast is some type of economic thing that that's how they have power over our economy. Is because you have to have this to do verse 17, buy or sell, and you have to have this mark of the beast. Now, once again, when it comes to the mark of the beast, I know there's tons of information out there. I know there's tons of articles out there where people talk about this all the time, about chips being planted under the hand and things like that, and that you can now take your hand and you can scan them, etc., that's all out there, and I understand that, and I agree with that. The truth of the matter is we don't know 100% what this is talking about, and this is not going to be revealed until we're gone. So those are interesting articles. I find that stuff fascinating, and I really do look at that, and I say, wow, Lord, a lot of this stuff looks like it's lining up with Scripture. But the truth of the matter is, number one, I'm going to be raptured out before this happens. Number two, it's not going to be revealed until it's revealed. So to spend a whole lot of time talking about something we don't know is... Kind of pointless in some ways. So we don't know 100% for what it is, but we do know the mark of the beast is their way of aligning themselves with the Antichrist. It's a very straightforward thing. Now, I've had people, every time we teach on this, always get concerned because the Bible says later in the book of Revelation that if you take the mark of the beast, that you're not saved and you can't be saved. Because basically what you're doing is by taking the mark of the beast, you're making a public confession of rejecting Jesus and aligning yourself with the Antichrist and aligning yourself with Satan. Now, there's always somebody who gets a little concerned about this, saying, well, what happens if it happens by accident? First off, don't worry about that, because let's get point A taken care of. Hopefully you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior now, so that way you can get on the first bus out. That's, that's the best way to look at it. Number two, I firmly believe, by looking at the Scriptures here, that when it comes to taking this mark, that is such a straightforward thing of what it means and what it represents, that you're not going to be fooled into getting it. You're not going to be fooled into not knowing what it is. You're going to know exactly what it is. And as you take that mark, you are making a public stance, a public confession of putting your spirit, if you will, on the side of the Antichrist and on the side of Satan. It's going to be that straightforward, and it's going to be that big of a deal. And so therefore, if you jump ahead, look at uh, Revelation 14, verse 9. A third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on, on his forehead or on his hand, of he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. By you taking that mark, verse 9, you're aligning yourself with the Antichrist. It's that simple. It's that straightforward. Ah, this is nothing we need to worry about at this time. I can remember years ago, this is back in the... Um, Oh, it was back in the late 80s. I had a Sunday school teacher that uh, they were teaching through Revelation. And so they were getting to the mark of the beast here. And they got on this 666 thing. And if I remember correctly, some of you that were saved at this time, correct me if I'm wrong, wasn't it, wasn't it GE? If I remember correctly, it was GE that had ended all their UPC codes with 666 or something like that. And so this Sunday school teacher was bound and determined that GE, GE was going to be something with the Antichrist. I think sometimes we can get ourselves so focused on details that don't matter that the enemy almost sits up there and smiles saying, you know what, you're wasting all your time and energy on stuff that doesn't matter. I know there are people that, that write books on this. 
know people that do whole teachings on what the 666 represents, and it's almost like a code that they're trying to break. The way I've always looked at the number 666 is the Bible speaks of this, six always represents man, and so when you have something like 666, you're representing the fullness of man. What is the fullness of man? The fullness of man is sin, which is the Antichrist. That's what it is. Some people say, well, wait a second, in the Greek, numbers and letters have this type of thing, and letters can represent numbers, and numbers can represent this, and they try to quote-unquote break this code. And to be quite honest with you, and I'm not trying to pick on anybody, all that time and energy you put into trying to figure out what 666 is, that's time and energy that could be used to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I'm not against studying it out. I don't want to be ignorant of it. But at the same time, this is stuff that's going to be revealed once we're gone. And once we're gone, we're not going to worry about this type of stuff. So the false prophet points people towards the Antichrist. He can perform miracles, and I put that word in quotes, and he's behind the mark of the beast on what goes on there. And he's the little sidekick, if you will, that is the ringleader. He's almost like the cheerleader, pep rally leader of the Antichrist that gets the world all pumped up and points everybody towards him. You know, I, every time I see this, anytime I see any type of president or world leader, etc., and they always have their uh, spokesman that goes up and does the press conferences, I always think of this type of guy. This type of guy that's just always going to be talking good about the Antichrist, always going to be uplifting him, talking about how absolutely wonderful and wonderful it is. It reminds me, and it's really not funny, but it reminds me of that guy, uh, you know, a few years ago um, when the war in Iraq happened, and Saddam Hussein had his spokesman that would get up there and make all these ludicrous claims. You know, the United States would say, we've landed and we've taken over the airport, and this guy would get up at a press conference and say, nope, there's no U.S. troops there. Just that mindset of this guy is always going to be saying what needs to be said to support Saddam Hussein. This false prophet, his whole job is just to uplift the Antichrist and make everybody look good, make him look good. That's his job, and that's what he's going to do. Well, we know here in a couple of chapters that the Antichrist and the false prophet will be judged for this, and these are the two people that are ruling the world here as we get to the end times under the authority of the beast. So that's who the Antichrist is, Verses 1 through 10, that's who the false prophet is. Verses 11 through 18. Does anybody have any quick questions, comments here? Yeah, Ryan. Yeah, because once again, if, if it's an end thing, you can see about being something being implanted actually in there. And what the forehead, some people may be wondering why the forehead. If, if you piece together scriptures, there's a reference back in the book of Zechariah. It seems to hint that possibly the Antichrist, that if he is truly immortally wounded back verse 3, that it was actually a head wound of some type. And so by taking the mark in your forehead, it's a way of almost showing, um, uh, I guess, support of him being on his side right there. There's a way to look at it. And just full disclosure, too, some people look at the mortal wounding of the Antichrist as not being a reference to a person, but actually being a reference to Rome itself. Uh, if you ever heard the phrase, the revived Roman Empire, back in Daniel chapter 2, Daniel has this dream where he sees this statue, the head of gold, Babylon, silver is the Medan Persians, bronze is the Greeks, and then iron is Rome. The, and then at the bottom you have the toes, which are a mix of uh, clay and iron. And those ten toes represent the ten kingdoms here that we just talked about of the Antichrist. And some people believe that the mortal wound actually is a representation of Rome itself as an empire being revived, not necessarily a person out there. Ultimately, you've got to remember, as it ends in Daniel chapter 2, that statue gets destroyed by the rock of Jesus Christ coming out of heaven. That's the most important to come out of there. Just like this Antichrist empire is going to be destroyed by Jesus when he returns in the second coming of Christ in Revelation 19. So even though this kingdom lasts for three and a half years, it will be utterly and totally destroyed by Christ when he returns in Revelation 19. Anybody else have any final things they want to say here? Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, God does have a thing for numbers there, and seven always represents completion. And that's one of the things about six, how it represents man, is it's it's imperfect. It's a, yeah, it's incomplete. It's a step below God. It's an imperfection. It's sin. That's why six always represents that. Anything else? Anything that we say here before we close up? All right. As always, and I think we've ended every study in the book of Revelation, it is really easy to uh, look at this uh, chapter 13 here and say, okay, you know what, let's talk about the Antichrist, let's talk about the false prophet, let's talk about this and talk about that. We don't need to be ignorant of it. That's why it's in the Bible. But at the same time, the only thing that truly matters is we know this information. As we know this information, I hope this then spurs us on to go be a light and a witness to our unsafe friends and loved ones. Because we know what is coming. We know what the future holds. So since we know what the future holds, I hope that spurs us on to go plant seeds of salvation and other people to truly be a light and a witness. Because just like we don't want anybody we know to go through what's coming here, so therefore I hope that lights a fire in us to say, God, I really want to share the gospel. I really want to be a light for you because you have blessed me with salvation, but you've also shown us what the future holds, and we care enough about our unsaved loved ones to do that. So, anybody, final things here before we close up? All right, let's pray and we'll let you go. Heavenly Fathers, we just come to you now. We are thankful. We are so thankful, Lord, just to be here. And Lord, thank you for the salvation you have given us. Lord, we just want to praise you for that. And as you have just redeemed us out of these future events, Lord, at the same time, we all have unsaved friends. We all have unsaved loved ones. Lord, we pray in the name of Jesus that you're speaking to their hearts, a heart of just to soften for salvation. Lord, I pray that you'd bind the enemy from working in their lives, that he's just put a veil over them. Lord, take that veil away. They may see the truth. Help us to be a light and a witness, not only in our words, but also in our actions, Lord, to truly shine for you. Give us that eternal mindset and that eternal perspective of everything we do to be focused on you. We lift this up in your name. And Lord, one final thing as we get ready to load those shoeboxes up. What a wonderful blessing. And I just, Lord, I just want to pray for every child that's going to receive one of those boxes. When they open that up, Lord, that they would not only be blessed but the Christmas materialism, but most importantly, the gospel, Lord, that they would know that someone cares and loves them, and most importantly, Lord, that you love them. We thank you and we praise you in your name. Amen. All right, you guys have a good week, and God bless.